Well, it's December 30th, which means my life is almost over. Really. In two days, I will attempt to keep some New Year's resolutions, which should last till about February, maybe. You see, I've been in pretty good physical shape until about a year ago. Some life circumstances happened, and I've experienced um, very, uh, I've, I've exercised very little, and I've eaten way too much. So, in two days, I'm going to change that. You say, well, why wait till then? Because I can. <laughs> for, for two more days, I will sit and read and maybe watch a movie. For two days, I will eat all that I want, lots of it. In fact, while I was actually, I'm not making this up, while I was writing this introduction, I was gorging on a bag of peanut M&Ms. But in two days, life as I know it will end. It will be time to get back into shape and lose the pounds that I have put on this year. How will I get back into shape? One thing is for sure. I will not join the wellness center. That would provide way too much accountability. <laughs> By February, some of you would be saying, I haven't seen you in a few weeks. So instead, I'll probably run on the treadmill or ride my bicycle trainer, both of which have gathered dust for the past year. H how will I lose weight? That is, on which diet will I embark? South Beach, Atkins, Weight Watchers, no wheat, no gluten. I haven't decided yet. Probably something simple like, if it tastes good, spit it out. <laughs> All I know is that by February, I should look, by my, look like my old self. <laughs> All right, you can take that off the screen. Thank you. Okay, so like there's nothing wrong with New Year's resolutions. In fact, I encourage you to make them. Lose weight, exercise, quit smoking, eat more healthy. In fact, the top 10 New Year's resolutions actually change little from year to year. I found several lists that look something like this, you know, eat healthy and, and exercise regularly, drink less learn something new. I'm going to watch the Discovery Channel on January 1st so that I can mark that one off my list. You know, quit smoking. Uh, my wife wants me to do this next one, better work and life balance, whatever. Volunteer, save money, get organized, read more. I'm like that one. And travel. W without a doubt, um, exercise, eat healthy, lose weight are on everyone's list. I'd ask for a show of hands, but then you'd have to be held accountable like me. We could add some spiritual resolutions if we wanted to, since we're Christians, like read the Bible more, pray more, do daily devotions, join a life group, serve more, etc. And those are all good. Again, there is nothing wrong with New Year's resolutions. But if you look at that list, most of them are rather me-focused. How you can be a better you. I was actually pleasantly surprised to find that volunteering made several lists. In fact, we're going to talk about that on January the 27th when we're all here. But the, these good things, eating healthy, exercising, drinking less, even you know, the spiritual ones, reading the Bible, praying, and personal devotions are all rather personal. And you should do them. But what about 
what about corporate New Year's resolutions? What about us as a church? What would God have us do this year? Did you know that much of the Bible focuses on us as a community? In fact, the Bible focuses much more attention. This may come as a surprise to you, but it focuses much more attention on community growth in worship and holiness and righteousness and service than it does individual growth. To be sure, there must be individual growth holiness to contribute to the community, but, but, but the emphasis really is on what we do together. In, in fact, I would suggest, while it is true that there cannot be um, uh, growth without individual growth, it is equally true that there cannot be individual growth without the community. I want to make sure you heard that. There cannot be individual growth without the community. I know you're immediately thinking of exceptions. We all know Christians, of Christians, who were forced to live in isolation and grew in their relationship with Christ, just like we all know churches that have grown spiritually where individual members have not. Okay, there are exceptions to every rule, but the point is true biblical Christian growth is supposed to happen in the context of community. Let me be clear. The Bible is much more concerned about the church than it is our personal Christian walks. You would never know that by going to the local Christian bookstore. How much of what we do is focused on me? Too much of what we sing, of what we say, of what we teach, of what we pray, of what we write, and what we read is about me. Do a survey of the music you listen to, even Christian radio. Listen to the talk shows, listen to sermons, peruse the bookstores, again, even Christian bookstores. You may be amazed at what you find. I was because I did. I went to iTunes, looked at the top 10 Christian songs this week, just did this little exercise. Top one was a Christmas song, of course, so I threw that one out. I looked up the lyrics to the rest of the top nine songs. I counted the number of times the words like, I, me, my and mine were used, and the number of times that we, our, and us were used. I left out those second-person personal pronouns, you and your, since I didn't know for sure whether they were singular or plural, and besides, much of the time, they were talking about God. Well, then, you know, they were Christian songs. So, anyway, I, I figured this little exercise would be revealing. I didn't count on it being shocking. In those songs, first-person plural pronouns like we and us were used a total of six times in one song. The other ones didn't even have we and us an hour. That's less than one time per song. First-person singular, however, like I, me, my, and mine 
were used 283 times. I, I know it was just an exercise, but I believe that it illustrates well the focus on me rather than us. Uh, you should know that some of the songs are they're really good songs. We, we sing some of them. I don't, I don't think we sang them this morning. Might have. <laughs> Not, nothing wrong with the songs, but I thought it curious that we sit in a room with hundreds of other people. Look around and sing about me. It really wouldn't matter if anyone else was here. And all of a sudden, this, the, 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 the lack of commitment to the local church comes into focus because it's just me and Jesus. So with the emphasis in the Scripture on community... What should be our community resolutions this year? I'm curious. In fact, I invite you. If you want to uh, take some time to, to write out what, what you would like to see as a community resolution for Alliance Bible Fellowship this year, write it on the connection card. I'm serious. Or you can email me. I would be encouraged to hear from you as to what you think God is calling us to do, to be. And I did say us. For this morning, does the Scripture have anything to say about what our community resolutions should be? I think it's a good question, and I wouldn't have asked it if the answer wasn't yes. You see, we're studying the book of Philippians. And Paul writes to this church whom he loves, some suggest it was his very favorite church, and after greeting them with his normal greeting, he launches into a thanksgiving. This was traditional for letter writing of his day. Typically, after the thanksgiving, you would jump into some prayer for your readers, and Paul does that too. His thanksgiving slash prayer actually goes from verse 3 to verse 11. We've already looked at verses 3 to 6, where, we, uh, where, where we've seen his thanksgiving, and now we're going to look at verses 7 to 11, where we see his affection for the Philippians, and then we're going to see his prayer for the Philippians. So, let's read verses 3 to 11, 3 to 11 so that we see the whole thanksgiving and prayer in its context. And, and as we read this, I, I want you to know something. It's very important. L- listen up. As we read this, every time he uses the word you, it's in the plural. Every time. Like we say, y'all. In fact, he adds the word all a few times for emphasis. It's like he's saying, all (laughs) y'all. Make sure you get it. So with that in mind, every you is, or your is plural, Let's read the text, Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of y'all, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for all y'all. Really, that's what it says. In view of all your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began to work in 
all of you, he will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about all y'all, because I have y'all in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, here's his prayer, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge, in all discernment, so that you, plural, may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Did, did, did you see his prayer for the Philippians in verses 9 to 12, these community resolutions for this particular church? And I want you to know that these are my community resolutions for us this year. I want this year to be a different year at Alliance. It's not that we have not been doing these things, but I, like Paul, want them to abound more and more. Let's begin by looking at verses 7 and 8, see Paul's affection for the Philippians. He says, it's only right, it's expected, of course, for me to feel this way about you all. Again, like a constant drip, Paul speaks of them all. I feel this way about every one of you. No one is excluded. You see, we're going to find out that there is some division in the church. And right at the very outset, Paul says, listen, I want you to know I am not taking sides. I know there are problems, but I want you to know I feel this way about every one of you. I know we're a big church. I know that you cannot know everyone intimately. I, frankly, don't know everyone intimately. But because we are part of the church of Jesus Christ, this local church that we call Alliance, there ought to be an expression of community toward every one of us. We're going to get to love in a, in a minute, but right now, Paul says, no one is exempt from my prayers and no one is exempt from my feelings. And then remember, Paul has been gone for 10 years now. And when he thinks of this church in Philippi, he's overwhelmed with feeling for them. By the way, the word feeling, though, does mean more than just emotion. It does include that, but it includes the idea of thinking. It is right for me to feel and to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. Now, we know in the Scripture, the heart is the very center of, uh, of, a, person, uh, of, of a person's being, his thinking, his, his feeling, his willing part, all of that, emotions, thinking, and volition. We use it for the center of emotion today. I love you with all my heart, we say, but, but it meant much more when Paul used it. I have you at the very center of who I am, the thinking, feeling, volitional part of me. Everything about me is tied up in you. He goes on, since both in my imprisonment, here's why, here's how, 
Here's why it's right for me to feel this way about you. Since in both my imprisonment, literally that's in my chains, first time that we find out he's writing from prison. Since in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Now, now that's a bunch of words. We're not careful. We'll just hear words and skip right over it. But look at it. He says, it is right for me to feel so strongly about every one of you because I hold you at the very center of my being. You are deeply important to me, every single one of you, because while in chains and having to defend and confirm the gospel, those are legal terms, since I have to vindicate the gospel, you have been partakers with me. Paul is anticipating his trial when he will have to give a defense of the gospel, he'll have to affirm his belief in the gospel. He says, and since I have you, I, I have you in my heart while I've been in prison defending and confirming the gospel, you all, there's that word all again, you are all partakers of this grace with me. Now what, okay, that's a lot of words he strings together. What does that mean? Well, partakers is the same word that we looked at back in verse 5. Participation. It's that word koinonia. He says, you are all sharing together in the grace, in the gospel of grace with me. What, what does he mean? Well, th th they had expressed concern for him by sending Epaphroditus. They had supported him financially on more than one occasion. So, so we're, we're sharing together in the gospel of grace by your being concerned for me and by your sending financial support, but that's not all. They had also shared in his suffering. See, he's talking about being in chains. He's talking about having to give a defense um, and confirmation of the gospel. And he says, and you're having to do the same thing. And this becomes a thread that runs through this letter. I have a special place in my heart for you because you haven't abandoned me during my sufferings. In fact, you have shared with me in the face of suffering. This is critically important. As we do the work of the gospel, as we do frontline ministry, taking the attacks and, the, and flack from the enemy, from those who would oppose us. There is this bond of life. That's koinonia. There is this bond of life that, 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 that unites us. That is, Paul is saying, it is unbreakable. Anyone who has been at war will tell you this. Sharing the foxhole with someone creates an insoluble bond. You would literally give your life up for another person. That's what Paul is talking about here. There is a bond between us because of our common faith. Yes, because of mutual support. Yes, and mutual love, sure. But because of our common suffering for the faith that's unbreakable. This requires that we do the work of ministry together through thick and thin. It has been rightly suggested that suffering separates the pretenders. When the going gets tough, pretenders quit. Yes. The church at Philippi, when hearing of Paul's arrest and imprisonment, could have said, Paul who? 
pretenders. But by their identifying with him, sending Epaphroditus, sending him money, and suffering in the same way, they created a connection that was unassailable. We share together deeply in something through this gospel of grace. It's, it's, it, it's the suffering that we face together. Verse 8, for God is my witness, how I long for you all, there's the word all again, with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul does not often, he occasionally does it, but he doesn't often call God to witness. But this affection was internal. This, this was a feeling that he had for them. And so he, only God knows about it for sure. So he calls God to witness. And so strong was his affection for them, he could say, God will affirm that what I am saying is true. How I long for you with the affection. And and that word is, not not like the earlier word of feeling. This word really is feeling. In fact, it's the word splankna in the Greek. I like that word, splankna. It's the word from which we get our word spleen. Like I said, we, used to, we say, I love you with all my heart. Yeah, you know where I'm going. I love you. My heart aches for you. They would say, I love you with all my spleen. I, I love you f- from my intestines. That's encouraging. That's what it means. Think of it this way. How I long for you from my gut. Have you ever missed someone so much that it hurt in the pit of your stomach? That's what Paul is talking about. His heart, his his gut ached for them. Later in chapter 4, he'll say, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, whom I long to see. So great was his affection that he could say that he longed for them. When Paul thought of this church, there was a, this deep emotional connection. This, this, you see, is a community resolution I have for us this year. To lo- Listen to me. To long to be with one another. To, th- th- that getting together in worship and in life groups and in ministry is something that we long to do because we have an affection for each other from our gut. You can start saying that to each other if you want to. I love you with all my guts. I, I, I long for us this year to have this expression that says, Getting together is something that we get to do. In fact, it's something that we long to do. It's not something that we have to do because it's Sunday. Paul was a leader of this church. He was writing to a church that he hadn't been to in 10 years. And he writes some words that frankly were very convicting to to me this week as I studied. Do I have this kind of longing for this church? This has been my prayer this week. Do you have this kind of longing for your brothers and sisters? 
In order for this to happen, it has to be the affection of Jesus Christ. Paul was actually saying, I long for you, I, I love you with the affection of Jesus. This really runs deep. I long for you with the love of Jesus. Just as Jesus would love you, that's how I love you, because it is Jesus' spirit in me doing it. The point is you can't muster this up. You can't say, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to really like the people of Alliance. You can't do that. As you are filled with the Spirit, which, who is the Spirit of Christ, you will then evidence the fruit of the Spirit in greater and greater measure, the first of which is love. And Paul says, as a result, he, he longed for all of them. That means you can't say, there are people here I really don't long for. There are people here I don't even really like. Paul says, I long for every one of you. My prayer is that this be a community resolution for us. Which brings us to Paul's prayer for the people at Philippi. And what I specifically want to see is community resolutions for 2013 and, frankly, beyond. Here they are. We'll talk about each one of them in turn. I want us to have, ready, more love, which produces more sincerity and blamelessness. I wrote holiness, which then produces more righteous fruit. Let's go through these very quickly, starting with, I want us at Alliance to be more loving this year. I just want, I want you to think about that. I want, us at I want us at Alliance to be more loving this year. When you think of holidays that we just came through, maybe Thanksgiving and Christmas, maybe New Year's, and how you longed to see the family members that were maybe coming to visit or that you were going to see. This is, this is what I want for the family that we call Alliance. Paul says it this way in verse 9, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. The word your is in the plural. I pray that everyone's love may abound still more and more. And this, this sentence most commentators point out is a bit startling because love here doesn't have an object. Paul simply prays that their love would grow. Well, okay, love, that's great. I can love the Tar Heels more. And love for who, Paul? For what? He doesn't say. But given the context and the use of the plural, most agree that Paul is saying, I pray that your love for God and for one another will abound more and more. And that makes sense. You see, he's going to also pray that we grow in holiness and, and righteous fruit. And we remember that, the, that love is the basis for everything. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, well, love God. And then he threw in the extra one, just like it, love your neighbor. So this abounding love becomes the foundation upon which we build Christ's likeness and service. 
And so he says, I want you to abound more and more. And abound is a strong word. It speaks of abundant richness. I pray that your love, people of Alliance, I pray that your love will grow richly, abundantly, certainly toward God and toward one another more and more and more. When do we get, I don't know. It's interesting, given my particular focus, Paul's focus this morning, that he uses the word agape. You see, I'm suggesting that that most of our resolutions are self-focused. It's about me. Remember, I'll lose weight. I'll eat healthy. I'll drink less. I'll read my Bible. I'll pray. But Paul says, my goal for you all is that we all grow in self-sacrificing. See, this isn't me-focused. Self-sacrificing love. It's not about me. It's about me loving you. And notice, he doesn't leave love unqualified. Our culture is very sentimental about love. Uh, To many today, love is nonsensical, illogical, emotional, devoid of anything cognitive. But, but, But I've said many times before, knowledge without love can be harsh and brutal. Knowledge without love can be harsh and brutal. Conversely, love without knowledge is mere sentimentality. In other words, the old saying, love is blind, not really true. Not not true. Paul says, I want you to love more and more in real knowledge and discernment. Real knowledge speaks of a deep, abiding knowledge that is gained through experience. Because of your experience with God... Because uh, uh, of your growing knowledge of God, because of your experience with one another, I want you to grow in that love. Not in blissful ignorance, but in knowledgeable love. One commentary I read suggested it would be strange for God to command us to love Him and not know Him. Of course, Love is rooted in knowledge. It's very important to Paul. All four of the prison epistles that he wrote at this time uh, address this knowledge. This is why it's very interesting as we're studying through Paul's letters in the order that he wrote them. This is something that was critically important to him as he's writing from prison. He told the Ephesians he was praying that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. He tells the Philippians he was praying that their love would abound in knowledge. He tells the Colossians he was praying that they would increase in the knowledge of God. He even told Philemon that he was praying that he would um, share his faith effectively in full knowledge. Knowledge of God is important to Paul. And and so this becomes a community resolution for us to grow in love with knowledge. Deep love for God and one another, rooted in knowledge. And I might add that this, of course, comes from our commitment to the Word of God. Oh, yeah, Paul says, I want your love to be discerning. The Word speaks of practical insight. We could call it, I guess, wisdom for determining right from wrong. But not just right from wrong, um, but determining the good from the best. This is very important. 
I, I want you, he says, to love each other, firmly rooted in the knowledge of God, discerning what is best for others in love. So while we love unconditionally, that is, I love you regardless, love is not blind to truth. We love each other and what is good and right and best for each other. Now, I'm going to come back to that thought. So first community resolution, let's grow in knowledgeable, discerning love for each other. Second community resolution, let's grow in sincerity or purity, that's what the word means, it really means unmixed. Let's grow in purity and blamelessness this year. In fact, he, he goes on to say each year until the day of Jesus, that is, until Jesus comes back. Notice the words, so that, this is, this is a purpose clause. As we grow in this knowing, discerning love, this will then allow us to approve things that are excellent. Now, the word approve speaks of testing for the purpose of approving. In other words, as I grow in discerning love, knowing not only right from wrong, but good from best, I can approve the things that are right and good for you, and you can do the same in, in me. And as we grow together, in and as we do so, we will grow in sincerity, which is the opposite of hypocrisy. And we can approve things that are excellent. This discerning love enables us to determine the good from the best. Think about it. Think of all of the things that we can be involved in that are good. This culture screams for your attention to be involved in many, many good things. Personal New Year's resolution type things. But Paul says, come on, let, let, let's, let's use some discernment to approve the things that are best. The, the things that are excellent, the best in priorities, the best in habits, the best in pleasures, the best in pursuits, the best in actions. Let's do that for one another, which we see, once again, that we need each other. If you are just testing your own actions and your own attitudes, there will be no growth because there will be no objectivity. It's like me saying, I'm not going to the wellness center because I don't want you holding me accountable. Another example. When you take a quiz at school, the teacher asks you to trade papers to grade them. You ever notice that? Now, you grade them. The teacher wants them graded, hopefully, so that you will pass. This is what the word approve means, hopefully so that you will pass. doesn't want you to fail. Any teacher worth his or her salt doesn't want his or her students to fail. It becomes a reflection on them and their failure to teach if you fail. So papers are graded so that you can be approved. Now, the person grading your test does it hopefully, objectively, right or wrong, but again, why do you trade papers to grade? Because if you didn't trade papers, if, if everybody graded 
their own paper, everyone would make a hundred. There would be no growth. But as we love each other, when there is something wrong, we mark it wrong and help the other person to grow so as to be approved. Here's the point. If you want mediocrity, grade your own paper. What I want for us at Alliance is to grow in love, to grow in sincerity, to grow in holiness, where we love each other so much that we call each other to holiness so that we can be ready when the King returns, so that we can be blameless when Jesus comes back. This is a lifelong process of sanctification, of growing together. Blameless is a very interesting word that Paul chooses. He could have chosen a number of different words, but he chose a specific word that speaks of giving no cause to stumble. I, I, want, I, I want you to grow in your love, in your sincerity, and in your blamelessness so that you don't cause others to stumble. stumble. You see, we're going to find that there was some division in this church. He's going to call them over and over to be united. I want you to be of the same mind. I want you to maintain the same love. I want you to be on 10 on one purpose. He's actually going to call out a couple of, of leaders by name in chapter 4. And so at the very beginning, he prays that they would be blameless, that they would not do anything that would contribute to division, causing another person to stumble. So, first community resolution. Let's abound in love more and more. Second, let's love each other so much that we help each other grow in the things of Christ, not causing another person to stumble. Third, as a result, we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. The fruit of righteousness is simply righteous fruit, righteous works. Paul says, he, he's building a case here. As you love each other more and more and hold each other accountable to pursuing excellence and sincerity and blamelessness, you will then grow in righteous fruit. In other words, this isn't just about me growing in on myself. It's about me growing so that I affect the lives of others. We love each other. More and more. It helps me grow in Christ's likeness, which produces fruit in Christ. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 15? I'm the vine. You're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Meaning, as we grow in Christ's likeness, we will of necessity produce fruit. And what is the end result of all of this loving and growing and fruit producing, this serving? Last part of verse 11. It's always the final word for Paul. To the glory and praise of God. As we love each other, grow together, and serve together, both inside and outside the church, it will all redound to the glory of God. This, this reminds us of the great hymn that we're going to look at in chapter 2. Verses 10 and 11 says, everything that has been done so that eventually every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So all of a sudden, we take all these loose ends and we tie 
it up, all of a sudden life becomes a little less me-focused. All of a sudden we recognize these resolutions are not just about me and about my physical and even my spiritual health. They, are more, uh, they should be more about our physical and relational and emotional and spiritual health. But even then, they are ultimately not for our glory, but for His. And so there you have it. Three community resolutions for us this year. I think they are good goals for us to abound in community love more and more so that we grow in community sincerity and blamelessness, holiness more and more, so that we serve with fruits of righteousness more and more, all for the glory of our great God. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we live in a culture and a society in which everything screams at us to make it about me. This will make you run faster, jump higher, look better, lift this weight, eat this supplement, and you can be Mr. Universe or Miss America. And yet, you are more concerned about the body of Christ called the church. And so as we make resolutions, personal resolutions, appropriate personal resolutions, would you help us keep a mind focused on your body called the church? Would you help us this year to grow in love? Would you help us to grow in holiness? And would you help us to grow in service? I pray this in Christ's name.